We are going to get started now. Thanks for joining. Um, so the subject today is why create mediocrity when you can copy genius. And you know the theory behind that is we want to give you the best ideas from the uh, recent guest webinars that we've had. So as you've noticed, we're doing on a weekly basis, of course, except for this week, of all of uh, having special guests to talk about topics that essentially that we think are very interesting or that we might be struggling with where we think the guests can help us. So we do have a very exciting uh, uh, list coming up. Some of you might know, actually, uh, Aswath Damodran from NYU will actually be on next Friday. So very excited about that, given his uh, he's a valuation expert. And he's had a lot of comments on FANG and uh, some of Elon Musk's companies, and uh, as well as the overall market. So I'm very excited to have him. I know he has a, a big following. But for today, and for those of you that might have missed, what we wanted to do, again, is go over some of the biggest takeaways and one of some of the more interesting takeaways that, that we've taken from our recent guests, um, which I think are um, some some are pretty important and, and I would say have really influenced our thinking uh, in some of the calls we're making, whether it be at the sector level or just thinking about the overall macro backdrop. There's not much to say on payroll. That was going to be part of the uh, part of the uh, the uh, presentation today. I'll allude to it maybe in some of the charts, but you know it was a, as good a number as you could expect, really. Um, if you know you have a headline that was much better than expected, you had a participation rate that increased, an unemployment rate that increased because the participation rate increased, and some you know um, relatively minor decrease in average hourly earnings, all of which would suggest that the Fed can be easier for longer, uh, which is why you're seeing such a positive reaction, obviously, in risk assets today. You know, the, I would say some of the initial reaction from the economists that I talked to, some of the buy side ones in particular, was that, you know, this does not change at all before rate hikes. you got to remember that the headline number is still extremely strong. So, you know, that does imply if you believe in the kind of demographic forces of the unemployment rate or impact of the unemployment rate that you will see by mid-year, mid both average hourly earnings above 3% and an unemployment, excuse me, yes, average hourly earnings above 3% and an unemployment rate below 4% by the midpoint of this year. At least that's the narrative that's being, you know, uh, bandied about, if you will. So no change in the Fed whatsoever. Uh, but no one's going to care about that right now. I'd also say this fits with uh, something that Yellen talked about for many years, which is the fact that, um, you know, there was maybe a lot more hidden slack in the system. And so what this does is maybe give some of the uh, the doves or people on the FOMC that have been pushing for an easier uh, path of policy uh, or easier financial conditions to maybe draw in some people for the labor force, or maybe a little louder voice. So very good news. Uh, we'll see how far it takes us uh, as far as days forward um, and, you know, whether or not the narrative will kind of start to shift about how strong job growth is and what that, that means. But... You know, I think it's very, very consistent with what we're saying, at least from an intermarket point of view, which is cyclicals over defensives. So you're seeing rates higher, seeing equity markets higher, which is consistent with improving real economic growth forecasts. What it's not consistent with is something we said here is a violent slowing pace of returns. We still think that is going to be the case, and we're still very comfortable with the slowing pace of returns, but this takes out the violent part of it a little bit, as you can see, with the pretty steep decline in the VIX. So, um, We'll go through some of that as we as we uh, as we go through the presentation, but let's kick it off. So, I wanted to start um, with Avery Sheffield and her big contribution. I think, um, at least to, to the way we think about things, and the guests that listen was focusing on the end of deflation in retail, and it, and it brought up a whole lot of uh, interesting discussion, which 
you know, uh, kind of gets relevant even for today. Now, what she's saying is basically out-the-door prices are now similar across stores at traditional retailers. And as I write here, that formerly low-cost player, low players, excuse me, such as H&M, TJ Maxx, Burlington, have raised their prices. And there doesn't appear to be any significant um, uh, companies leading prices meaningfully lower. And a lot of that has to do with maybe the shipping costs that are becoming fixed uh, and are difficult for, for, say, someone like Amazon to continue to cut prices against because – you know, that shipping cost is what it is, and maybe it would, eat, it would eat too much into the margin. It also has something to do maybe with companies being better at managing their inventories, which is something she mentioned. She used Ralph Lauren as an example, going from 15 months into inventory turn down to somewhere in the six to nine month range now, and hopefully down to three, which is their forecast for next year. And of course, the buy online pickup model, which is Walmart outfitting their stores so that people can buy things online and pick them up on the way home. Now, that's all nice theory. Um, and we could all say that that's great, but is that ever going to happen? And Amazon's still a monster out there that's destroying everything in its wake. What I point to is one of our favorite charts on this subject is our pricing power survey. So this is Oscar Slaughterbeck's pricing power survey. I'm sure all of you know that. What it shows you here, the blue line, is uh, pricing power for the retailers, excuse me. And so this is basically 10, 11 of them of these retailers are essentially um, uh, brick and mortar, and these are sales. So a few years ago, as Amazon competition became, and I would say technology competition in general, became much more intense, you saw retailers significantly reduce uh, price at the same time that they held sales. So that implied, obviously, much weaker uh, margins, earnings, retail apocalypse, and all the fun things that people talk about. What you're seeing now, though, over the last um, couple of years, but it's really accelerated more recently, is a significant increase in pricing power of the retailers at the same time they've actually held the line on sales. So kind of fits with the narrative that, that, that Avery talked about. But let's go to something what I think is a lot more interesting and gets into a bit of a productivity discussion. Um, she talked about the easier return policy of doing buy online pickup versus having to pay for, for something and then return, return it because of sh shipping costs are an item. So it got us thinking about shipping costs. And I got this from the ATA, the four hidden costs of truck bottlenecks and road congestion. Now, anybody that commutes in New York, in London, in San Francisco, or any major metropolitan area, Atlanta, et cetera, Chicago, has dealt with the congestion problem, which is, at least in New York, is just absolutely awful at this point. And so what the ATA um, mentioned here is that put simply shipping delays add costs, right? And no one's really sure about the magnitude, but it appears to be pretty staggering according to them. So time spent looking for truck parking amounts to nearly 10% of a driver's annual wages, and that seems to be increasing given how many more trucks are on the road. Um, Traffic congestion added $60 billion to operational costs in 2015. Now, this is two years of data, so it's obviously likely increasing, but, you know, I can't prove that. But anecdotally, looking out the window, it seems to be the case. Uh, cost of shippers, highway congestion, including bottlenecks and other sources, delay costs. Delay, excuse me, cost of shipper, an estimated $7 billion a year. And, of course, the, the bottom line is this, is this eventually comes down to the consumers, which maybe that's what's showing up in the pricing data. So I think this is a really interesting productivity suck um, that we've talked about, but I've never really uh, I was lucky to find some, some data on this and looking for more that is um, not talked about enough. Do we have the infrastructure to deal with the Amazon type economy, the hub and spoke system that's been set up uh, for them to increase, you know, or let me rephrase that, to solve the last mile problem in urban areas? You know, one of the things that's interesting as we went to this um, 
and Avery mentioned this in the call, is that many delivery service services have specific time frames for delivery uh, versus the ability to pick up whenever you want. So it might not be convenient for you. And uh, if in fact there's more congestion, that makes it even harder. But I'll also add this, and I didn't even realize that, uh, the federal fuel tax, which helps pay for uh, a lot of upgrades in infrastructure, hasn't been raised since 1993. And as the ATA notes, and I'm quoting them here, you know, we have many obsolete bridges um, there's the, what that's doing and, and just the decrepitness of our bridges is leading to, um, you know, tr uh, tr truck restrictions, excuse me, and bridge load limits, um, which further decreases productivity. And that's in, you know, all before you even add on the Amazon impact, which, you know, he calls pretty substantial, uh, which is that bottom part. So all interesting things to think about that I think give you this kind of structural underlying inflation and headwind to productivity, quite frankly, because, you know, prices are being raised, obviously, without more output being associated with it, that, that I really think is underappreciated. We just don't have the infrastructure to deal with this shift. Next, let's move on to Marco. So just as in sum there, I think there's maybe a little more stickiness to inflation than people realize, and that's what uh, Avery helped us um, really can really kind of, you know, kind of see a little more clearly and why we're, quite frankly, still, still, uh, still favorable to favorable towards retail ex Amazon. So that's the first. Second, let's go to Marco Lopez de Prada. Now he's the one who came on and talked about quant. Um, he has a book, The Myth and Reality of Financial Machine Learning. I really like this one because uh, Marcos actually is a buy side person that is using this um, and actually, you know, you know, putting a lot of what he's doing into, um, into you know, uh, real world investing. So the first takeaway on this was, you know, quant and the impact of optimization forces investors to, to focus on deep structural issues. Um, this is like a, a big part of what we'll get to in this section. And, you know, the other thing he mentioned, and this is something I think most people know, is machine learning will detail the key features of what is driving the market, but won't tell us how. And so I think this is where behavior becomes such a large, uh, such a bigger influence on markets going forward as quant optimizes things. And so what we took from uh, from this, and I kind of add on Andrew Lowe's comments, who's an MIT professor uh, who wrote a book about called Adaptive Markets that I think everybody should read, is that portfolio optimization tools are only effective if rationality is an accurate assumption, right? And so as you sh potentially shift to a different regime, you know, irrationality can take over. And, you know, so in that kind of, backdrop, understanding the financial environment and population dynamics, as he notes, of market participants is more important than any single factor model, right? And diversification, broadly speaking, across asset classes becomes less effective because everything is optimized to the same regime. Now, the way we show this to you is, and the way he points about it is that, you know, volatility across asset classes has become increasingly correlated, and you can see that here. Um, the drive lower in volatility across asset classes. And I would argue has happened as these optimization tools have really accelerated. And then we have a potential regime shift and bam, oops, sorry about that, and bam, asset uh, volatility, um, volatility across asset classes becomes extremely correlated. And there's no real way to hedge against that. And so that's one of the things to understand from a, when I think about risk management these days, it really comes down to understanding behavioral shifts. So when I say behavioral shifts, are there, is there something going on that we've all optimized for, like say low inflation, and is that shifting? 
and understanding how that might happen is how, and, and what are the consequences is how you should potentially risk manage, uh, not across asset classes. You know, related to this is what we, we point out here, um, and when you think about behavior, and we got this from uh, from Noah Smith, who's a good friend of ours, and it's related to Marcos's point, um, is that you know there has been no ability of economists to model behavior. And the reason that is, and I underline it here, is behave, people behave in very complex and situational dependent ways. Uh, sometimes they underreact to market movements in one situation, and another there, in an overact in another. Something we've all witnessed <laughs> recently, right? Um, and one of the things that um, uh, Xavier Gabo mentions in, a, in an academic paper where he's attempting to quantify behavior in economic models is that one of the ways you can adjust for it a little bit is uh, focusing on you know limited human attention. So many behavioral biases share a common structure, which is people anchor on a simple perception of how the world and, and the world works, and partially adjust to it. And you know, it's and as that adjustment shift is obviously what potentially impacts asset prices. So the world is so complex; there's so many things going on, and we kind of partially pay attention to it. Hence, now let's draw back to the market. Think about all these massive narrative shifts that we've had just in the last month. You know, we went from a period which I would show here on the chart, which is uh, inflation expectations that have moved down significantly along with the term premium. Now, over that period, you saw the multiple expand meaningfully, which just was a reflection of lower inflation expectations, negative term premium, but no recession risk associated with that. So Goldilocks forever. And if you have a low inflation, low real rate, low economic volatility backdrop, and there's not going to be a recession, your evaluation can be you know, make it up as long as you think earnings are infinity in theory. Boom, that potential narrative shifts, things start to increase, the term premium has come up a little bit, but not a lot, and you have a volatility kind of unwind. Um, now you fast forward to today, decent, decent payroll number, we're right back to this regime. So I think people are partially paying attention, and then you get run over by this potential narrative shift, and hence volatility across asset classes, both up and down, becomes extremely correlated. Now, in an optimized world, um, focus on behavior, but how do you stock pick? And this is something, uh, an extension of Marco's point, uh, I think at least when, when you're thinking about the, 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 the why, not what. So what I'm showing looking at this chart is basically for the abnormal returns um, uh, attributed to a perfect earnings prediction model. So if you had a model that perfectly predicted earnings, your abnormal returns right now are essentially zero. Uh, they were much higher, and they in this period they were showing annualized returns of upwards of 20 plus percent, um, and so that's why a lot of analysts uh, focused on quarter-to-quarter -quarter earnings and just the beats or misses to to generate alpha. But in an optimized world, that's becoming extremely difficult, and speed-to-market technologies, et cetera, is making it much harder for for companies to I'm sorry, investors to really benefit on, from from that. Now. Beyond just optimization from machine learning and different kind of quant tools, there is intense competition. Um, this chart here, what I'm showing you is CFA charter holders relative to publicly traded companies. So right now there's 40 CFA holders relative to publicly traded companies. Back in 1995, it was less than four. Fairly amazing. Uh, what a steep increase. Now, one point on this I should make is that you have half the publicly traded companies in 1995, so that's part of it. But there was a lot of money to be made in our industry. There was, um, you know, 
before tech started dominating everything, and that probably helps explain why you've seen this large increase as well. So that's something that makes it a little more difficult, I think, uh, in addition to the quant overlay, just to play earnings. So what's to do and what has happened? What's, where I think fundamental has a chance to survive in the world that Marcos outlines is really is related to this intangible asset game. Now, what, what one of the things we've talked about a lot in meetings is that intangible assets make up roughly 80% of S&P 500 companies' value right now. That's up from like five in 1980. So we're in a tangible economy, um, which has a lot of kind of um, implications just coming off of it. But one which is really interesting is that the abnormal returns from earnings have declined, as we show, as we show here, as intangibles have become a bigger part of company valuation. So, so investors are not necessarily focused on earnings, right? Um, it's other intangible things, whether it be subscriber growth at Netflix, et cetera. So one of the conclusions that, the, that a different author uh, draws from this is it does potentially justify the selection of less diversified portfolios that focus on skewness. So in an intangible world, stepping back for a second, one of the things you have is very high sunk cost. If you're making an investment, it has a high sunk cost, and it has an asymmetric payoff, um, but if it doesn't pay off, you know, there's no recovery to that value. You're SOL, whereas if you're buying a truck, uh, any type of equipment, there is some recovery value. And so it's difficult for a lot of CDOs, CEOs, I think, to make the, to, to make the kind of uh, decision to really invest significantly in intangibles. That's how you get these kind of, you know, and especially when there's such asymmetric payoffs, the network effects, you have monopolies out there right now. So what does this mean? Where investors can differentiate is understanding that target doing CapEx doesn't make a lot of sense. They announced three to three and a half, going from three to 3.5 billion in CapEx and stock went straight down. Uh, Netflix announcing some type of investment, stock goes up. Disney doing the same thing, down. Understanding those differences and an understanding how companies are leveraging intangible investments and who the winners are and losers are gonna be is something a quant model is not gonna be picked up. As it's not going to pick up. Uh, I did have a conversation with a quant this week exactly on this issue, and they were struggling with the fact that in certain investing um, quant screens, it's difficult when some are winning and some are losing so dramatically depending on what they announce. So that's a way I think investors uh, in this optimization world can benefit, focusing on the benefit of intangibles, the skewness, the payoffs, and then on the other side is the behavior. And the rest is going to be optimized away, which to say a broadly diversified portfolio is in trouble. Uh, if you're interested in this, I'm just going to stop on this for a cup of coffee. Um, for those that are, you know, that are clients that are listening in that do run uh, firms that are interested in maybe hiring quants, you know, the silo approach that works for discretionary PMs does not work for quant PMs. The problem with the silo approach is you need well, stepping back, quants look at a lot of different data sets. They look at a lot of different potential options for generating alpha. Uh, identifying new strategy requires large teams working together. If you don't have that in its silo, there might be pressure on them to generate ideas and you know generate a lot of false positives. So I think one of the ways that it fails in the kind of quantumental current approach is when XYZ quant is hired by some firm, and there's pressure for him to come up with something that works, and it's not this big, broad, diversified set 
diversification works more for one, of different ideas and looking for the best ones, but there's pressure on them to come up with stuff and they end up, because there are behavioral biases even for quants, stuff that gives you false positives. So something for investors to think about there. Uh, Chris Call, volatility machine, uh, so for those of you who know Chris, he came on, it was a very well-timed call, it was about a month ago, talking about, uh, it was the last payroll report actually, and we talked about the potential for an increase in vol, and boom, over the next week, everything just went haywire. Um, so I think he made a very good point, and this is, relates back to the regime, and it relates back to behavioral and some of the things we've already talked about. Um, you know, everything was optimized for low inflation, low real rates, low economic volatility. And that's how you could have short volatility trades, um, which is the short VIX ETF that everybody knows about now, up 162% mid-January and now down 91% year-on-year. Um, so as volatility is, has adjusted. So, you know, what he was talking about is there's an exceptional amount of money either explicitly or implicitly in volatility trading strategies. Now, one of the takeaways for me from this is and again, this is maybe a little, you know, something we can debate, but if in fact we are moving to a higher inflation, higher real rate, higher economic volatility regime, you know, the reason why we're calling the market return potentially violently flat is because a lot of what Chris outlined is say like there is the implicit short vol, but there's the explicit short vol, I'm sorry, but there's the implicit short vol that is we have no idea how big. It seems to us that just about every portfolio manager globally uh, has some type of long duration short volatility trades on. And that includes hedge funds, macro funds, asset allocation funds, pension funds. And what does that mean? Long, extra long, uh, ultra long duration bonds, uh, growth stocks, some type of defensive stocks, uh, Hong Kong real estate. And so there was so much, there's so much money in short volatility to the extent that it starts to move into a higher volatility backdrop. One, I think it's the obvious thing is the pace of return slows. That's the, the easy part, but it also potentially means it's violent because we don't know how much money is hiding in this stuff. And so the degree to the violence, I think, ultimately will, um, whether it be a much larger decline in stocks or not or something of that nature, will really come to, you know, will a recession risk increase meaningfully. But in the meantime, you will see a lot more volatility, in our opinion. Today just reinforces that, um, and that's how we get to a violently flat, slowing pace returns. The chart I show you here is the one I think everybody should – think about is um, when you're really thinking about stock market volatility, focus on bond volatility. Um, this is the 10-year term premium inverted. We have the VIX there, which is 10-year term premium is essentially um, directly related to 10-year, excuse me, volatility. And uh, to the extent that that starts to increase, you're going to see a sustainably higher VIX and a lower multiple. So in post-tax reform, Here's one thing that I worry about of us being a little too um, uh, forceful on the higher volatility backdrop. Chris made the point that you know share buybacks do compress volatility. You know, for four trillion since 2009, 30 to 40% of the earnings growth has been from share buybacks. Uh, you know, firms use low interest rates to increase debt and buyback uh, shares. Investing in human capital, i.e., intangible as opposed to capex. Intangible investment is volatility reducing, if, especially if it uh, increases monopolistic characteristics. Um, so, you know, this bottom chart shows it to you. There's going to be potentially $800 billion in buybacks this year. I mean, that's an extraordinary number. It has nothing to do with necessarily debt increasing significantly, but, you know, the tax reform. 
So one of the things I think where we would be maybe potentially wrong on the violently slowing path of return that has to do with just accelerated buybacks and no inflation risk, <laughs> hence the actual market today. So, uh, Gerard, I'm moving on to one of my good friends here. You know, we had Gerard on. He's a former uh, chief economist of Point72. Interesting in that he's a buy-side economist. Um, he's planted some seeds in our head that um, we continue to quote in a lot of our work. I think it's important that investors understand this, even today as we watch the market go up, because it was such an extraordinarily strong uh, payroll number that nothing really changed on the Fed point. What do I mean by that? So he made a, a very intuitive point here is to say that, you know, we're at a part in the cycle, especially given, you know, the fiscal stimulus, where if the U.S. dollar is going down, equity prices are going up, and financial conditions aren't tightening, then rates need to increase even more to tighten financial conditions. All right? So the Fed does find, to focus on financial conditions now, which is the kind of Dudley approach. And that's, I think, a really important thing for people to get. Like, the more stocks go up, the more likely they are to actually tighten financial conditions. I get it. Today was a Goldilocks report and all that. But thinking out over the next couple of years, that is the game plan. This is also why I don't think a decline in the U.S. dollar is a positive for stocks. What I'm showing you on this top chart is since um, the earlier this year, late last year, you've seen an, an increasingly negative relationship between 10-year yields and the, and the DXY. So DXY down, 10-year yields up. Um, at this point, you're not going to get much more benefit. Um, well, let me say, the investors are probably not going to appreciate the benefit of a lower dollar to earnings. You already have significant earnings growth, 174 for next year, 158 for this year, the 800 buy, billion in buybacks, I've already mentioned the PE contraction is a bigger issue right now to focus on. And I would argue that the decline in the decline dollar, if it means a faster pace of rate hikes, does help contract PEs. So stable dollar is probably better all things equal. The other point is financial conditions. Obviously, we saw the steep decline. This is the Bloomberg Financial Conditions Index on the bottom chart. We're roughly back at this level. Still extremely easy, probably getting a lot better today. And so the more stocks go up, the more that is a problem, especially meaning a problem for you know potentially tighter financial conditions, especially if we do get a reversal in average hourly earnings um, and the unemployment rate back down in the coming months, given how strong job growth is. So this is why we're still comfortable with a violent slowing path of returns and stocks going up or down 30 points a day is consistent with that. Today happens to be on the upside. The other thing uh, for the longer term, and I, you know, this is, I don't want to, focusing on the long term is difficult. I was talking to our team about this yesterday. Um, I was in Canada this week, kind of one, number of wonderful meetings, talking to a lot of uh, asset allocators. One thing that was brought up, um, at least for a number of different times, is worried about T plus three, which is to say three years from now you have the you know, negative potential impacts of the fiscal stimulus. I, it starts to roll off, and if trend economic growth is 1.7, and if we've been growing at three for a couple of years, you know, recession risk increases meaningfully. Um, and the thing that Gerard brought up at this point is that, you know, Stimulating the economy when you don't need it, and I write it here, is um, especially when the FOMC is tightening rates, it's not ideal, and it could lead to some fiscal austerity in the next phase of the downturn. And I have a comment in here that like a negative feedback loop would potentially you know, develop given the proximity to zero lower bound. And what's interesting to me is risk premiums just don't reflect that at all. Um, bottom chart, I'm showing you the uh, implied equity risk premium that I 
actually take from Demondron, who again will be on next week, uh, that, that basically takes next five years earnings growth and an assumed um, payout ratios, dividend plus buybacks, you know, versus the 10-year yield, and it gives you the, the, essentially the implied equity risk premium, which is down at the 25th percentile. And I don't think there's any type of recession risk associated with that at all, and especially if the next recession could be really severe. And it gets back to my conversation with Canada where everyone kind of seems to agree that, you know, you take a lot of career risk trying to time this stuff. It sounds a lot to me like the pre-housing narrative. And I'm not suggesting we have to worry about it now. It's just, you know, don't be shocked if, in fact, if the narrative changes to any type of recession of what that could mean for risk premiums, given that austerity would be, con would be more likely in the next downturn. Uh, someone mentioned in a meeting, maybe even look a little bit like Europe in 2012. Let's focus on productivity and Gerard's point here. Um, if fiscal stimulus doesn't raise productivity, which we don't think it will, uh, the Fed has to raise rates more than people expect. This is an important point. Um, we think productivity is critical right now in the cycle. I'm not gonna get into this for, for too long, i.e. higher, higher uh, growth relative to inflation. Today's data supports that actually, but ultimately it doesn't look like we're gonna get have higher productivity growth. It's been running very weak, the forces that have driven it lower don't seem to be dissipating at all, which to say labor is being displaced by automatization and pushed down into the slower services part of the economy. So as people like Amazon, et cetera, you know, start moving into higher, let's call it margin industries and higher productivity industries, they automate it, people are forced out of those jobs and they're into the service sector, which includes, uh, which is 70% of the economy includes healthcare, bartenders, masseuses, et cetera and you just have low productivity as a result. That doesn't seem to be changing. The problem is this week's productivity data pointed to about 1% trend GDP. So it was so weak, but the five-year average is now at roughly 1%. I have that here with the latest tick. What does that mean? It means the trend of the economy is not 1.7, but 1. And if the trend of the economy is 1 and not 1.7, then running at 3% growth is actually tighter than the Fed is estimating, right? Because three is so much higher than one relative to one seven, obviously. So that is why the in that in in that sense the payroll report can actually be fairly hawkish if you believe that the trend is one. It might not be, but this is a critical issue going forward that we need to focus on and will become so if and when the unemployment rate starts to drop down before below four percent and you start to see wages increase. And the last from Gerard and, and we'll move on. Probably most important F1, um, QE did not in fact impact term premium. He just thinks that's BS. I happen to agree with him. You know, between you know, the FOC, when, when the FOC took duration out of the market you know, by via mods, that was completely offset and then some by uh, deficit increasing and treasury issuance. Uh, what impacts term premium is bond volatility, um, and by extension overall vol. So term premium will rise as bond yields pick up, inflation picks up, and I got my volatility picks up, it's not because of QE. And the last point on this is if you think, really think that QE was impacting term premium, then you must be absolutely terrified uh, by uh, QE going away at the same time treasury supply is supposed to accelerate meaningfully this year. And that treasury supply is going to move into the further out on the curve. It's mostly been in the short duration two year, but it's moved, currently moved, should be moving out into five and longer. Um, so we're not worried about that because we don't think it had an impact. Secondly, this is likely why the, you saw the euro reaction. 
this week to the ECB's news. It wasn't the announcement of QE, as a lot of people thought that was hawkish, um, and then confused why the euro didn't go up. It's because they lowered their inflation forecast in the future, and the lower inflation forecast in the future means no rate hikes, and of course low inflation. There's been some topping in the data, and it was that's why people thought the ECB was dovish. I think there's just less caring about uh, QE and its impact uh, as you move away from the zero lower bound in the U.S. and trend economic growth is relatively stable. Dawn of Eurasia, Bruno Macias, uh, really like this one. So longer term, I think this is critical for investors to think about. What is the Dawn of Eurasia? It's, uh, well, I guess initiated by the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, which is the Silk Road. So China's massive investment uh, into uh, connecting Europe um, and China and Asia through the Silk Road. Now everybody knows it's a massive infrastructure product, uh, project, but what, what what Bruno focuses on is this is more about China uh, expanding their influence than it is about the you know the the infrastructure investment impacting economic growth. And as Asia, I'm sorry, as Europe turns more towards Asia on a go-forward basis and they become more interconnected, you would argue that um, one, in trade increases and Europe is less levered to the U.S., one, you have stronger economic growth in that region, um, you have sustainable Chinese economic growth, and you also have Euro that becomes potentially a de facto reserve currency because of its leverage to China. So. Chinese yuan doesn't, or the renminbi doesn't become the reserve currency. It is euro that becomes the de facto China reserve currency. And then you start to see euro reserves increase meaningfully as, as this happens. Of course, the U.S. is turning more insular at the same time. And all this gets to is, I would think, a significantly lower dollar over time. I think the biggest impact from the dawn of Eurasia thing, as I can think from an investment point of view, and that's why I think it's the best idea, is a significantly lower dollar. Now, Everybody is short the dollar. We get it. Uh, I think a large macro force or significant macro force totally overwhelms that. Um, but with twin deficits in the U.S. and us turning more insular and inflation increasing, uh, you know, and trend economic growth extremely weak, and China looking like they're pulling off a transition, it's a really negative combination for the dollar. But let's look at the dollar on a DXY basis. This is where we are. You know, it looks really bad. You know, since since January of last year, I get that, but this is where we tr were for a long time, and then in 2014 period, when everyone started to freak out about Europe, rightfully so, you saw this massive increase in the dollar peak at some point last year, and now we haven't even come back to these levels. Now, I would argue we'd go through them over time. So yeah, two are negative on the dollar, but we haven't really uh, consolidated, and we haven't even gone back to the old to the old lows that existed. You know, before uh, Draghi, you know, basically said we do whatever he takes and massive QE program and uncertainty, et cetera. And as people started to discount the U.S. revision rates, as Europe was doing the opposite, so that was a big dollar tailwind. So that's starting to be reversed, and I think that's important for uh, for people to understand. What does that mean? Unfortunately, for the U.S., it means higher inflation per unit of growth over time. Import prices, ex petroleum, go up. That means core CPI goes up. And with a 1.5% to 1.7% trend GDP, you could have 2% inflation with less than 2% real economic growth, which I would argue is probably not the best thing for risk assets if you're not a fang, I guess, um, uh, which means money outside the U.S. is going to look uh, – or putting money outside the U.S. from a global, global asset allocation point of view is going to look 
you know, increasingly attractive. And then last, Azim, who I thought was just excellent, we covered a wide range of topics. Uh, he's the uh, editor, of, uh, creator of the Exponential View. It's a newsletter that hit me up if you guys want to get on. Uh, covered a lot of topics. We went over the intangible economy thing um, that I mentioned earlier and the sunk costs associated with it. And I just want to point out one of my favorite charts, which I do think is probably having some um, some real impact on oil prices, obviously. And his point was basically it's just impossible to 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 forecast exponential changes. And basically, this is a chart of electronic vehicles on the road. So this is actual, and these is everybody else's estimates. So it's just happening so much faster than anybody is estimating, which maybe this is just the oil call right here in addition to sales. Like this this thing is happening at such a faster pace than anybody's discounting that it is what it is, and, you know, that's why no one seems to care what happens with oil prices, at least in the near term. Energy stocks are consistently for sale. So something to think about. Thanks to Azim for, you know, putting the uh, intangible uh, really focusing in on the intangible uh, economy because it's a really big issue right now. That's just it. Uh, in some, I think there's a lot of things that we focus on here that it's interesting, but sticky inflation in retail due to shipping costs. Keep keep harping on that. It's not going to go away. Um, I love Gerard's point on, you know, as the U.S. dollar goes down, stocks go up. That does mean tighter financial conditions, and there's ultimately a governor on the pace of returns. So consistent with our call. Uh, Marcos on optimization, focus on behavior, and focus on companies that can lever um, uh, intangible investments. Uh, that's where I think qualitative analysts or fundamental analysts will have an edge relative to machines, which are going to kill the middle ground. So investing in large, diversified portfolios is difficult in an optimized world. That's Marcos' a very large point. Um, I think that's it. Obviously, I just talked about Azim. It is 11.10. I went a little over time, but we had a lot of good ideas. Um, again, why create mediocrity when you can kind of be genius? Basically, the uh, tone of the call that I thanks so much for dialing in. Have a great weekend. We'll have a re we'll have a replay. We have a podcast now, which is basically this, just on podcast, so you can hear that if you want to listen again. And uh, have a wonderful day and weekend. Bye.